You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome to the show with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And uh, a few weeks ago, an absolute head turner came through the the printing press through the multimedia channels and it was something that I've been talking about for a long, long time. It was the need to include land prices in inflation. And the CBA's senior economist, Gareth Aird, was the author of such a modelling. And today we're going to slide into an interview with him discussing just some of the facts that, you know, we had... Melbourne house prices up 16%, Sydney's 19%. So exactly how is this justified, I asked Senior Economist Gareth Aird from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Well, I'm, I'm not sure it is justified. I mean, basically, um, our measure of inflation here, the Consumer Price Index, uh, doesn't include land prices. Uh, it includes a measure uh, of dwelling prices, but that excludes land. So it's effectively just the cost of um, building a, a new home. Um, and what we've seen is that, you know, as according to the CPI, in, inflation in Australia is incredibly low. Uh, that's underpinned the Reserve Bank easing rates down to where they are now at 1.5%. Um, but inflation is low in part because um, the, the thing which has risen uh, significantly over the past five years, uh, dwelling prices uh, aren't actually included in the, in the CPI. That's right. And there was a fantastic summary of your note on the ABC News website by Michael Yander that listeners will find in the show notes where he said, since 1998, national dwelling prices have roughly quadrupled while consumer price inflation was just up 63%. And over the last four years, dwelling prices rose 44%, while other consumer prices rose just 8%. So this is a bit of a global trend that happened in the 1990s, the late 1990s, uh, where in the US, the UK, and a number of other westernized nations, such as Sweden, removed land from the CPI. Do you come across any rationale as to why this actually occurred? That is the big question, isn't it? Oh, look, I mean, you can go back and find a dialogue um, between the Reserve Bank and the ABS as to why land's excluded. Um, And I think that the main reason is that, um, you know, the central bank here wants to target what they consider to be uh, the real pulse of inflation in the economy. And uh, because land's viewed as being an asset, uh, it's excluded from the CPI. I mean, my basic point is that Everybody needs a roof over their head, uh, whether or not you're renting or buying, and yet the CPI excludes uh, the biggest single purchase that a household's ever going to make, uh, which is a dwelling. And it'd be fine if land prices were moving largely in line with the rest of the consumer basket, uh, but the reality is that land prices have been running far, far ahead of the rest of the consumer basket. And effectively, depending on when you were born and whether or not you were lucky enough to get in the, into the property market, uh, you've faced a very different uh, outcome in terms of your real wages, uh, whether or not you, you've bought a property or not. And don't we know that one? It's certainly the case when it comes to intergenerational welfare. The line they usually use to justify the removal of land from CPI is that housing consumption is a zero-sum game. 
when one person sells, another person buys it within the same household sector. So supposedly there's no leakage. But this doesn't relate to the reality of our lives of uh, more and more debt-related, land-related debts. No, that, that's exactly right. And that's why I don't, uh, I don't think it's right uh, when people use the CPI the way it is now as being a de facto cost of living index. Uh, because it's not taking into account the single biggest purchase that a, that a household is likely to make. And if, you, if you're a household or an individual who's been saving to, uh, to buy a property and you haven't yet purchased one, well, your real wages have been going backwards for years. Uh, if you look at just the CPI, it implies that they've been growing. Uh, but when you actually discount for the fact that land prices have been running incredibly high for five-odd years now, well, you've experienced a decline in real wages, and that is not picked up anywhere by just uh, deflating nominal wages by, uh, by the CPI. And so what we're talking about here is the fact that two-thirds of the land component, uh, rents are included, but uh, those who own homes, uh, that's not actually included in the inflationary figures. And it's a huge, huge uh, factor on the way economic policy is set here in Australia. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the only component of uh, having a roof over your head that's really considered, I think, in the, in the CPI is, is rents. Um, the measure that's in there that's worth about 9% of the CPI that's actually just um, new dwelling purchases is effectively the cost of building a, a new dwelling. And it's really just related to construction costs, so effectively what you're paying uh, for the raw materials and then also the labour. But it's not actually picking up uh, the, the ongoing cost, if you like, of having a roof over your head, and only rent uh, is picking up that. And I think that would be absolutely fine if households were completely indifferent uh, between renting a property or purchasing one, uh, but they're not. And part of that's related to the taxation treatment around, uh, around your own residential property. And the reality is because they're not perfect substitutes, I think it's wrong to only have rents uh, included in the CPI. That substitution effect is core, or the lack of it. Uh, but one of the other core reasons for justifying land's removal from CPI is that rents reflect the price of consuming a flow of real estate services at a moment in time. Of course, many homes are owned by the occupants and not rented. So this moment in time factor, how do you see that when the theory talks about a static analysis of housing, but you are hinting that the price of real estate keeps going up and up and up. So how can they defend that this should not be a core component of the good old CPI? Well, they've defended it a lot of ways. And, you know, I guess the argument that you know, buying a, a property of someone is just a, a transfer payment doesn't generate any economic activity uh, and therefore it's investment, not a consumption good. So that's, that's the rationale for it being excluded. But I just take issue with it given uh, we've just seen this huge lift in land prices, which is effectively making households who haven't purchased a, a property but are saving to do one uh, a lot worse off. Uh, and yet it's not included in the CPI. Uh, we're constantly being reminded that we're in a low inflation environment uh, but the reality is we're in a low CPI environment. But actually, if you look at dwelling price inflation, we're in a very, very high inflation environment. And because I think that uh, it's absolutely necessary for a household to have a roof over their head, it should be picked up. It's, it's somewhere in the, in, the, in the analysis that households are, are effectively going out backwards if they haven't purchased a property. 
Well, we certainly agree with that. Now, let's get to the nub of it. How much higher would the inflation rate be if land prices were included? Sure. Well, look, it depends, obviously, how much you weight uh, the basket um, skewed towards land. But if, for example, land was worth 10% of the basket, which is very similar to the current weighting of new dwelling purchases, uh, then the CPI would be, on average, uh, over the last um, 20-odd years, about 55 basis points higher through the year. Uh, and in recent years, so over the past five years or so, it'll be 1% higher through the year. Well, that's a big, big difference. Uh, of course, it, this is all based on the fact that the Reserve Bank would have made exactly the same uh, interest rate decisions as they have. Uh, but it just really shows that even a small weighting, I consider 10% to be relatively small, uh, has a massive impact on the CPI. And that's just highlighting how different uh, the price movement has been between the, the basket of goods that are in the CPI uh, and dwelling prices. Now, Gareth Ed, Senior Economist at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, tell us how they select this basket of goods to survey the pricing each month to see how prices have altered. How do they select that basket and how do they decide the actual weightings per item in this uh, select group of uh, goods and services? Well, look, I'm not an expert on on the CPI and the history of it, uh, but basically the basket is meant to be uh, sort of commensurate with what the average uh, household consumes. Uh, Those weightings and what's in the basket are revised uh, every few years. Uh, but basically, it's trying to pick up a measure of what uh, what the average household is spending their money on uh, and changes in the price of the goods and services that they're purchasing. Uh, but of course, it excludes the single biggest purchase that a household's ever likely to make. Uh, and so for a lot of people uh, to uh, to be talking about an inflation rate around 2% uh, doesn't really match uh, with the experience that they've got um, themselves. Uh, when they're saving or just have recently done purchase something which has gone up significantly uh, in price. Come to me, lover, I've secrets to tell. Hi, we're Dash. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Come to me sweetly, this love of great Now, listeners, that's where I should have hit Gareth up with the fact that today's CPI is listed at 1.5%, but uh, he found with just a 10% weighting that the CPI plus housing would be some 2.8%. Now, we must note that for many of us, we're spending more than 30 to 40% of our income on housing, not 10%, inferring that inflation could well be some 4 to 5%. That's massive, and you just think of the implications regarding interest rate settings. They'd be going upwards, stopping this housing boom, rather than dropping if uh, we were at that sort of scenario. So uh, I asked Gareth, um, now they do include the mortgage interest component to the CPI, so if they were to add that to the land price, would that be indicative of the average income earner's weekly housing costs? Now, watch out, he slams me on this one. Well, they, they don't actually include the mortgage interest component. They used to, uh, but they took it out. And they took it out because the Reserve Bank uh, effectively argued that uh, it was counterintuitive to what they were trying to do with monetary policy. In other words, if the inflation rate's falling and the central bank's easing, well, that puts downward pressure then on the interest component, mortgage intre- interest component of the CPI, and then that further pushes down uh, on CPI inflation. So 
because it was working counterproductively to monetary policy decisions, they, they took it out. Uh, it was never replaced with anything else. But in fact, if you wanted to replace it with something that would actually support monetary policy decisions, well, you could put land prices in there and basically as the Reserve Bank pushes down on interest rates, uh, that pushes up on the price of land and that would have actually a, a positive impact uh, on the CPI. It's intriguing how that oversight was justified without the insight on exactly uh, that effect on uh, land prices itself. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think, you know, we're basically seeing there's a whole other lot of factors, obviously, that go into why dwelling prices have ended up where they are. But, you know, monetary policy is one of those things. And it's created quite a um, quite a intergenerational problem, really, given younger people are uh, a lot worse off by the fact we're in this um, very low wages, very high asset land price environment. So combined with low productivity, it really is a bit of a, a headache for government to how to get out of this corner they've put themselves in. But let's move on with CBA's senior economist, Gareth Ed on 3CR's Renegated Economist, where way back in the early 90s when I was studying economics, I subscribed to the CBA's monthly economics issues notes. So it's fantastic to have an actual author of this paper on the show. Uh, one of these economic issues papers you forwarded is about the labour market and some of the pressures occurring in that there uh, segment of the economy, uh, particularly regarding the underutilisation rate. And for many years, uh, we've used the unemployment rate as a core measure of the economy. But over time, we've uh, come to recognise that uh, the unemployment rate only uh, needs people to work a couple of hours a fortnight to be considered employed. Who can survive on that, I wonder? Well, economists have uh, started to look at other measures, including this underutilisation rate and its importance today in terms of uh, this bind governments find themselves in due to the low interest rate realm that's curtailing their main economic growth uh, policy tools in in terms of uh, cutting interest rates. They've got nowhere to go, Gareth Ed. Yeah, sure. Look, the underutilisation rate is the broadest uh, measure of spare capacity in the labour market that we've got. And it's really just the sum of the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate. Most people are familiar with the unemployment rate and effectively you're unemployed uh, if you haven't got a job and you'd like to work. Um, but underemployment is something that hasn't really been talked about too much until probably just the recent past. And that's looking at the percentage of people uh, who have a job uh, but they'd like to work more. In other words, they're still looking for more work. And on average, someone who's underemployed is looking for, for two extra days of, of work. And so when you sum the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate, you get the the broadest measure of spare capacity in the labour market that's looking at just the percentage of, uh, of the Australian workforce who uh, are looking for work in some capacity. And that's very, very high for our historic standards. And... Um, it's really what I think is, is underpinning very weak wages growth because there's plenty of people out there uh, who are looking for work and when you've got that sort of a situation, it's hard for employees to negotiate pay rises. 
So we have record low inflation, record high land price inflation. Then we have this spare capacity via the underutilization rate in the labor market. Alongside that, we have this growing casualization in the workforce with Australia taking over from the US as a more casualized workforce since mid-2013. The US, they've gone back towards more full-time employment, but what do you think of this casualization undermining uh, Australia's uh, economic miracle? Yeah, so so the shift towards part-time employment has been underway for an extended period of time. Uh, but in Australia, that really accelerated with the downturn in the mining investment boom uh, because basically we lost uh, a whole lot of very well-paid, uh, long-hour type jobs, full-time jobs, uh, good good money. And uh, we've, we haven't replaced the quality of jobs that we've lost. And effectively, that's just uh, sped up the trend towards part-time employment. It'd be absolutely fine uh, as an economy if we had a growing proportion of part-time workers, if that's what people actually wanted to do. Uh, but we know through looking at the underemployment rate, because that's been rising, that there's a lot of people who are employed in, in part-time work who don't actually want to be there. And that's when you've got a problem, uh, because it means that there's a, uh, a big chunk of people out there in Australia uh, who, are, who are looking for more work and they can't get it. Another one of your economic issues papers talks about the neutral interest rate, which is something we haven't really delved into here on The Renegade Economist. Can you give us an overview of what the neutral cash rate is all about? Yeah, sure. Look, the neutral interest rate is a a theoretical interest rate, and it's effectively uh, the interest rate that you would have in an economy if it was running at, at capacity, you had full employment, and inflation was in the central bank's target. And that's not a a constant rate, it it changes over time. Uh, It's impacted by a number of things, but the single biggest thing uh, I think that impacts on the neutral rate uh, is the total amount of debt in the economy as a share of income. And basically in Australia, as the total amount of debt relative to income has been rising, uh, the neutral rate's been falling. And so we're now in a situation where the neutral rate is at a record low. And what it really means in a layman's terms is that it's pretty easy for the central bank here to put the brakes on the economy. Uh, they don't have to raise interest rates a few times, uh, but it's quite hard for them to stimulate the economy by a monetary policy from here. And that is the corner governments have dug themselves into with this low interest rate environment. As we enter this federal budget season, uh, which way forward have governments uh, got left? I was interested in this uh, neutral interest rate as you crunch a number of different models to find uh, uh, this 3% neutral interest rate. So uh, if interest rates just increase a few points, the RBA would be pulling heat out of the economy. So if that was to happen alongside household debt pressure, government is facing more and more pressure to use fiscal policy, to use the the budgetary levers at their hands to uh, try and stimulate the economy and equality. Look, that, that's exactly right. Um, you know, for a number of, we've, we've basically been in a structural decline in interest rates for the best part of 30 years. And effectively, um, because interest rates were so high back in the late 80s, uh, there was plenty of room for them to be cut uh, to stimulate growth. And a lot of that growth just comes through uh, the household sector uh, taking on more debt, and that goes back in the economy in some capacity uh, into spending. But when you get to the point where you've, you've used most of that stimulus and you've got um, down to where interest rates are now, you've got a hangover, which is the actual total amount of debt now that the household sector is carrying. And that's at a record high 
relative to income, and there's not too much room for interest rates to go lower. So, you know, that over-reliance, I think, on monetary policy to stimulate growth uh, has left us now, and we're not the only ones here, there's other economies around the world in a similar position, uh, where we've got to go back and look at fiscal uh, stimulus and fiscal policy as a means of, uh, of, of generating uh, additional growth. And public investment is absolutely one of those uh, avenues. It's got to be, of course, the right uh, investment. And then you also look at um, taxation reform and, and ways there uh, that, um, that policy can be changed to help, uh, help drive real growth. So if we look back over the last decade, post-GFC, we saw this race to the bottom with interest rates uh, being pushed down under, under the guise of export competitiveness. Everyone was trying to jawbone down their exchange rates so they could export more. But at the same time, this made it easier for investors to jump into the real estate market, piling on uh, these unrecognised inflationary pressures upon those trying to buy a house. Now, one of the great pressures government face, and I know the development industry faces, is that if there was to be some sort of policy that led to a correction and remove this speculative largesse in housing, uh, the pressure from the banking industry on developers in terms of bringing, uh, calling in their margin uh, loans is an aspect that we've seen. Some developers have given away cars, couches. They've done everything but drop land prices because they know they'd be asked to make up the difference by their bank. Is there a case for some sort of leeway from the banking industry to support land price corrections back towards the long-term fundamentals of land values? Well, there's a whole lot of issues that go into uh, to where land prices have got to where they are now. Uh, monetary policy is obviously one of them, so where interest rates are and given how low they are uh, was, also, was always going to have a... Um, uh, a positive uh, impact on on land prices, uh, as well as we've got other issues here in Australia that um, that help to put upward pressure on on land, namely that we've got uh, very strong population growth by OECD standards. We've got a taxation uh, system here that favours uh, investment in housing uh, over or can favour it over other asset classes. Um, and we've also got foreign investor interest in our property market at a time when you know, supply or the land release uh, in terms of what it can do to add to supply has been um, a bit slow, I think. So all those factors have contributed to, uh, to high, very high, I would say, uh, land prices. But given that interest rates have had a big impact on that, and I don't think they're going to go much lower than that, the upward pressure that's come through to land prices via monetary policy, I expect, will wane. There's certainly interesting times. Gareth Ed, where do you see the Australian economy heading with the upcoming federal budget in mind? Yeah, look, so it looks like we might see a little bit more public spending uh, in next week's budget. Uh, that, of course, would, uh, would have a positive impact on growth. But I think more generally, the economy is going to chug along uh, next year in a pretty similar position to, to what it did last year. The impact of declining mining investment on the economy will wane, uh, but equally I don't think we're going to see any more stimulus to the economy come through uh, monetary policy. So uh, I think we'll be in a, uh, a below-trend type um, uh, growth environment. Um, I think the labour market's still going to have plenty of slack in it. 
Um, the unemployment rate at the moment is a touch under 6%. It'll probably stay that way for, for the best part of the year. Um, I, I think we're, we're in a situation where we need in Australia another, another growth driver to come through. I mean, that could come via a depreciating currency. But you know, at the moment, I think until that um, solid growth driver comes along, uh, we're not going to return back to the sort of glory days that we were in uh, five, five or so years ago. That was Gareth Ed, Senior Economist at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, discussing how and why land prices have been removed from the CPI, from the inflation rates. And when you consider that uh, uh, the RBA cash rate is at some 1.5%, but uh, if we included uh, the land price effect, it'd probably be closer to 2.8%. And that's just on a 10% waiting for land. And when you consider that most of us are lucky to spend 30 or 40% of our income on somewhere to live, many are 50% plus, uh, uh, that 2.8% is probably closer to some 4%. Uh, in the UK, there is a, a continuing debate over the need to include land prices back in their inflation measure. And it seems like they've got two different um, statistical bureaus over there. The Office of National Statistics has started to do uh, what Gareth has talked about called the CPI plus H. They call it the CPIH. Uh, consumer price, inflation plus household. And uh, they're saying that uh, with 16.5% of the basket uh, assigned to the land component, it would increase inflation from 1% to 1.2%. So not massive there, but it's something that does sneak up and and it helps justify this never-ending property bubble. And we've got to do something about it. We talk about how this has just begun. Wall Street's ramping through the planet, so commodifying the rental market now. We've got to get our act together, people. We need uh, all of these statistics fixed up uh, because 40-year, uh, 50-year mortgages are almost upon us and it's time to really knuckle down and study in on this and and really flex your muscles, people, because it's been devastating to see uh, with the Victorian state budget they're looking to fund the domestic violence program of some $1.9 billion through and yet another privatisation. One you've heard me spitting chips over uh, regarding New South Wales, South Australia and perhaps WA. They are going to privatise our state land titles office just as we get to this era of geospatial analysis where we could animate flyovers for communities and see how various uh, developments are going to add to certain landholders' uh, profits, to their economic rents. Well, this sort of privatisation makes my job so much more expensive. Uh, really, I'd love to see your support. If you can join prosper.org.au, $30 for a membership uh, to get access to our 112-year-old magazine. 113-year-olds, maybe even now, and I think it just is uh, this week. So fantastic to be involved in a movement that's been around this long. And when you consider that so much uh, domestic violence uh, relates to financial pressures and when housing is our biggest spend, it's just... A horror zone to think that they're funding that program out of making it harder to research uh, housing affordability. My, oh my, oh my, my, uh, the tears, the, the anger, the frustration. When the prices of the rich, uh, rich person's assets increase, it's a booming market. But when the price of the working people's labor increases, that's called cost push inflation.
Uh-huh, uh-huh. You've heard it all before here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. <sighs> See you next week. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR.